All right, so we are at the tail end of, of our Corinthians, or of our uh, Kings and Prophets study. I'm in Corinthians already. <laughs> we are going to cover today as best we can first, uh, 2 Kings 13 and 14, and its companion, which is in 2 Chronicles 25. Now, my, my plan is, I think, to cover 13 and 25 specifically, and if we have time, we'll, we'll try to merge in 14, because... Uh, 14, 2 Corinthians 14 and 2 Chronicles 25 almost parallel each other. Again, did you all notice that? You could almost, they were a little bit, uh, I think there was a little bit more information in 2 Chronicles 25 than in 2 Kings 14, but 2 Kings 14 highlighted a couple of points that the other one didn't. So we'll try to merge those together and then maybe we'll be able to get through the whole lesson today. That would be a delight. Okay, wrapping us up, I want to ask a couple of, of questions for you. When you think about what we've looked at so far in, in the study of the kings, what would you say is the most profound lessons that you are seeing God uh, display to us in these writings, these accounts? <coughs> Yes. That is pretty challenging too, don't you think, Yoshiko? I mean, it's, it's, God says to do it with a whole heart. And often the comparison is with David, who is a man after God's own heart. Um, we've said this a million times. I'll say it again. David was not perfect, however, was he? Does that give you and I a little bit of grace even in our own thinking that it is not about being perfect, in exercising our faith walk, but it is about having a whole heart. Where with David, what made him be a man who had a whole heart? Yes. So when he was confronted by his sin, he recognized it as sin and he was sorrowful. There was a sorrow that brought him to his knees before God and there was a repentance and he was willing, which is interesting, we didn't study David, we jumped over that and went straight into Solomon, but with David, what, from our previous knowledge that we just kind of bring with us, we know that David was always willing to endure God's judgment, whatever it was. He, you know, he, we see a couple of examples of that if you go back and look at how God, when God brought a judgment against his sin, what, how he responded to that. Have we seen in the study that we've done in these last three series, have we seen reactions of these other kings when they were confronted? What kind of reactions have we had? Yes, it was a momentary, short thing, and then he turned right back around and did something awful. So sometimes there are, what does that tell you about humanity that, would you say in your thinking, Ahab was a man who really knew the Lord and loved God? No, okay, we all are in agreement on that, correct? Although our study in Kings has not been about identifying whether they're saved or not saved, there is still that fruit of the of the tree that you can look at a person's life and you can you can generally look and say well I really don't think this person knew the Lord what is the indicator in our in our uh, kings and prophets study that tells us whether or not we feel like God was approving of their lifestyle they 
Right. There's that key repeated phrase throughout all of... So if anybody is going to drop in to a, a look in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, one of the things that we should probably um, at least give them a warning about, or maybe it's not the warnings, not an instruction about, would be watch for the statements that God gives about that man's life. Because if the only thing you know is God says of him he did right in the sight of the Lord or he did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Then as you're reading what you're reading about him, does that help you to view it through a prism that's more correct? Would you say that lines your plumb line up just a little bit better? Just that one point. Even if you haven't done any other kind of study. We've done a lot of things to give us some parameters that helps us. We know that as precept students, there are additional things to go looking for. But a person who's not skilled in inductive Bible study, even if all you told them was, find the statement that gives God's conclusion about that man's uh, uh, what do you call it? his reign as a king, and look to see what God's assessment is of him, correct? And then once you do that, then go back and reread your information, all right? So that's a good insight to have learned of, you know, who, who walks with God, who pleases God. What else? What other insights? Consequences. Because when you, you look at that tagline, mm -hmm. you see that what looks like maybe harsh or you don't understand why God would do it that way, it falls in. It can fall on the people afterward. Mm. Interesting. Now, why do you think that is? In, in when we're looking at something like the Old Testament and we're looking at at Israel and the things that God did with him, why is it that the consequences can some, are actually falling sometimes on other people, not the one who did it? Okay. Okay, so one of the emphasis that we've picked up then in this book is that leadership is one, and how a leader, a leader, leadership for God's people, correct? For God's nation is one of the points that we have been subliminally learning that there is a standard and a responsibility of a leader of God's people. Now, when we look at the kings and the prophets, we know that, that these kings are kings over what? The nation, right? The nation of Israel. So, and, the, and a, a covenant uh, subject keeps coming up, correct? So when you're looking at the things that are going on with God and how he's dealing with these people, what is the catalyst that, that seems to be either reigning in or guiding the people and also God? Whether or not they're adhering to that covenant. So I think that is for good interpretation on this, you have to keep in mind that God's focus is, a, is about his covenant with his covenant people and is dealing. One of the reasons in what you brought up, Carrie, is about the consequences can sometimes fall on the next generation. It's not because God wants to punish someone else for what was done, but that this was a covenant um, 
with a nation. It was a national covenant, not an individual covenant. Are you understanding that part so far? So God deals, so when you're looking at the kings and prophets, he is dealing uh, through a national covenant. So that's why you're seeing often the things that you're looking at in the kings and prophets, the things that, that come up. The way that God responds often is because he's seeing a national perspective, not an individual perspective. He's looking at what the king did. When the king, sometimes the king does a personal sin, but then God judges the whole nation. Why? What have we seen happen sometimes when kings make bad decisions? Does it only affect him? This week alone we saw that, didn't we? Where we see a king making a decision and then the consequence of his decision, even though he repented, there was a consequence that followed where other people were hurt. Why? Because he's a leader over a nation that God has given. He has a national responsibility and the decisions that he makes has a roll-down effect. And sometimes your sins are not always mopped up, are they? That, in other words, can God forgive sin but still allow consequences in your life? Have we seen that consistently over and over as we've looked at the kings and prophets? Sin can be forgiven and is forgiven, right? If you, if you repent, sin is forgiven. When we repent... But, there's that big word, but consequences may still remain. And often do. It's kind of, you know, the most obvious one is, you know, somebody who has a, a sexual encounter that they shouldn't have and she ends up pregnant. You know, well, she can go back to God and, for, and he'll forgive her, but is she still pregnant? Yeah, the baby doesn't go away just because you've now repented of this, right? Unless you're in the world, and the world has its own solution, which is murder. Do we know any case where sin was forgiven, but the consequence were not there? Yes, today's homework. <laughs> yes, today's homework. Are we sure? Yep. Yes. It's not somewhere hidden? Nope. The no, the consequence is still there. Oh, always. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I thought you were saying the opposite. No. Um, I, don't, I don't really see that's a principle anywhere in God's Word. I think that's a good point, Heinz, that, you know, do we ever really uh, believe in our own personal lives? How many times have you had conversations with people who say to you, let me just do what I want to do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect you anyway. It's just my life. But is it only just their life? Yeah. <laughs> and that, in my opinion, is one of the reasons it was written was to show these people deserve judgment, but he stayed his judgment for a nation because there were people who were faithful. Yes. And that's one of the things that gives me, believe it or not, I think this is a very hopeful book. I know that sounds crazy, but it's like he is long. 
long-suffering. Yeah, he is. And he's long and he's long-suffering not, not because of the faithfulness of the people, but because of his own faithfulness to his covenant. So he's made a covenant. This is what overrides everything that we've looked at, is he made a covenant way back at Mount Sinai with, with um, uh, I wanted to say Noah, Moses. <laughs> Uh, you know that other the other guy <laughs> with Moses and the Israelite nation and you know they said yes we will obey and he said okay yes I will bless and but if you don't then there's going to be consequences there was, this was a conditional covenant and this covenant is very distinct from our New Testament covenant and I do think that um, when you learn the subject of covenant, as we've talked about this, that it's such an important subject to really have a good grip on. But when you are able to really distinguish between the old covenant and the new covenant, you quit realizing that, that or, or believing in the back of your mind that your relationship with God is about your behavior. Your behavior is an outflow of your relationship. It is not what, it's not the catalyst that, mo that propels it. What propels it is you believed God and he reckoned it to you as righteousness and he gives you his spirit and he tells us in his word that he is the one then that will do a good work in you until the day of redemption. He will sanctify you day by day, little by little, but it's by his spirit that he does this and you're to cooperate and to be, you know, working towards righteous living and a holiness in your life, but that's not salvation. That's your sanctification. So that there's a distinction there. With, with the nation of Israel, what we are really observing is all about uh, a covenant of obedience or disobedience and what the result will be in those two. So God is simply teaching us a principle about what he, how he relates to man. Yes. You know, and he does send them somebody who pulls them back. Mm -hmm. And so he is keeping his covenant in that way. Mm -hmm. Even when you have very evil king like Ahab, you know, his, uh, his dynasty only lasts so long. Yes, yes. All right. Well, it can be good or bad. Yeah. Yes. No, that's true. You're showing up to Bible study is going to have a consequence. Hopefully a very good one, right? We do. When my son, Eric, was tiny, he was like two, maybe, 18 months to two years old, just learning to talk. He and Vanessa in the back seat in their little car seats, and his sister kept hitting at him, and he turned to her. And at that time, you had little boys, especially sometimes have that really big, thick tongue, and they can hardly pronounce words, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you better stop that, Nessa, or you all like the consequences. <laughs> and I thought, mm, I wonder how many times I've used that word. <laughs> it was one of the first things he learned to say was, you won't like the consequences. Uh, anyway, okay, so now when you think back about the author's purpose in writing, what are some of the things that we've already addressed? We did this last week and the week before a little bit. I just want to say it one more time. What are the author's purpose uh, in the writing of these uh, records. Oh, why, why they were in, uh, in, 
Yeah, to understand why the consequences came upon them, as if God hadn't told them. But now he has to basically have a record to say, see, I told you so, and now you did this, and so now this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So it's to, it's to teach them and to instruct them to understand um, what they did it right or wrong, right? Um, I'm just going to put it this way, to know and understand God's ways. You know, why did he put them in captivity, right? Why did they um, have to go to Babylon and for the amount of time that they were there? What, what was that all about? And, you know, a, a benefit of that is if they can come to understand why they ended up where they did, what's going to happen then later when they go back on their land? Hopefully, I know, exactly, that they're going to walk in a, in a manner appropriate. The greatest thing, though, is when you move into end times, we see God saying, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. One day God will fully accomplish it. How do you think, what do you think is the distinction between the Old Testament and what God did with that nation and those people at that time of be, trying to be their God, right? He was their God, but they weren't his people. That was the issue, right? Remember the last co uh, covenant that was renewed in our last week's homework was that the people renewed their covenant to God, that they would be his people. They never said that God would be their God. They said that they would be God's people. In the New Testament, though, there, there, there's the absoluteness that God will be their God. And what do you think is the distinction there? What's missing with these people that are, that are, we're looking at, the record that we're looking at, where they're missing it? What do you think they're missing? Yeah. Obviously, a true love. Now, this week, our, our major subject is about the wholeheartedness, which is what Yoshiko brought up. To have a whole heart for God is to be fully committed to him, right? In a way which results in actions that please God in our life. So when you're looking at the old versus the new, when we're looking, because these things have been written that we would learn from them, it says in Romans, right? So these, these ancient texts that we're looking at from the, from the kings and the prophets period, we look at those to learn a lesson about how God wants us to have relationship with him, how he wants us to live as his people, as a nation. And then the great news is, is that in the New Testament, he tells us that one day we will be, and that there will be an empowerment to be able to do that in a way which does please him. And so what is the hope for us? Where is the real joy and delight in the knowledge that we have that where we do compare the old kingdom versus the new kingdom to come? We can, we can, we can. Not only can we, we will. Isn't that, isn't that a, kind of almost a scary thought? That, scary as in, wow, that's amazing because I know I'm trying right now, but I fail on a regular, I'm more like a David, right? Most of us in here are more like a David. We have a desire, we have a repentant heart, we want to do it right. The, I want to is the major thing. What is it that holds us back from really fully obeying God correctly? The world, our flesh, our own flesh, right? So we're, to we're torn by the world. We're t 
tempted by the world, and our, our own flesh, our own sinful nature tends to pull and tug at us. Um, I love the Romans passage that says, wretched man that I am, right? What, what is it that's going to set me free from this body of death? And then the answer is, praise be through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where the, the real answer comes. And I, I look back in the Old Testament, and I, in, in some ways I, I'm sad because they didn't have that abiding, indwelling Holy Spirit, which we have. But does that excuse them? No, it does not. And we know this because? Because there was, number one, there was a covenant. And any other reasons? What do you see God doing with these people when they do fail? Judging them. There's consequences, right? And when they, when they are successful and they, like we see this, one of the little points in, in this week is we see them turn to him and pray to him and ask for his forgiveness and his, for his help and for his guidance. Even a person who's been evil, all of a sudden he shows up at the prophet's house and he wants the Lord's you know, insight as to how to handle his working as a king. What is he to do, right? And Elisha gives him insight. So when we do do right, God does what? He hears and he responds, right? Yes, exactly right. And so that guy sought the Lord through Elijah, Elisha, and uh, he found That's right. And I want to read it to you, and I don't want to forget about it, but there is a verse um, that is back in Samuel, or 1 Kings, rather, 1 Kings 8, where it was Solomon's prayer. It was a promise that the nation itself was established upon, and when the temple was um, uh, commemorated unto God when it was um, dedicated to God. The, uh, Solomon prayed a specific prayer that says that when your people fall away from you, when they fall into sin, when they turn and do what's wrong, but then when they repent and come back to you, Father, then please do this. And we want to look, go back and look at that because I really see that in this particular record this week again, how that all the way back in First Kings where we started, now we're seeing over and over really applications of what was said at that dedication of the temple. All right, um, one more thing. I do, I'm just going to throw it out there. I see one of the most major things in here is for us to come to understand and to desire no other king in our life but God. These people went waywardly and sadly so, but yet God allowed them to go down that path, right? Why do you think he allowed them to have the king to begin with? They just demanded it. So what does that tell you about our relationship with the Lord? Okay, so number one, he doesn't make us. Number two, he allows us to sometimes even walk in a wrong way in order to teach us, to help us to see him better and understand better. I think about our, our relationship with our children. Don't we teach our kids that way? Sometimes your child stands, when they're little, they stand in the store and stomp their feet and say they really want this particular item, and you're just shaking your head going, they're going to play with it for two minutes, and then they're not even going to like it. Or they're picking out a a, an ice cream or a candy that you know they're not going to like but so you can either insist that they do what you think that you know they'll like or 
you can say, okay, go ahead, and then let them learn through their experiences, right? So which is the better parenting technique, apparently? Let them learn through their mistakes. We learn through our mistakes often. Now, this is a huge learning curve, I think, and it's a sad history to have to go back and look at. But Israel was learning through God's gracious allowance within covenant. I mean, they're already under covenant and already set. He had the legal right under a legal binding agreement called covenant to make a greasy spot on the street out of every one of them. Because when they break the covenant, God has the right to do unto them as he did unto the animal, which was split down the middle, and the blood ran to the, to the center, and they walked through that in a figure eight, and they said, Lord, yes, we will, we will do it. And in covenant, you're really saying, and Lord, if I break my covenant, you have right, if you so choose, to take my life for breaking my covenant. He has a right. Does he do that? Occasionally he does. On occasion he has. And we see him actually even judge whole houses. Remember we went through uh, last week and we looked at these different dynasties. And we saw how the Jeroboam's dynasty was destroyed by Basha. And Basha's his dynasty was destroyed by the next two that came in there, Zimri and Tibni. Then we see Omri, and who was Ahab's. And that dynasty then was destroyed by God. So God will allow us to go along for a period of time, but then for the sake of his covenant and protecting and, and in hopes of both teaching, but also of desiring desperately to bless. God's often his discipline was because he wants so much to bless them, but he has to bring them back in right relationship. And as, as parents, we go through this. As friends, we can sometimes even go through this. I know when, when the kids were little, and if one of my children in particular, our poor son, I'll use him as another demonstration, but when, you know, when my husband would be so frustrated with him, and he said, I would love to give him a blessing. You know, I want to reward him for doing good, but he's got to do something good. You know, and he just kept waiting for him to just get over the disobedience and do something right so that he could come in behind and say, here, here, son, this is for you. I'm so proud of you, you know, and that's hard, isn't it? That's how I see God with Israel in these uh, records. We're seeing them over and over and over disobey God, and God keeps trying to bring them back into right alignment with him, trying to um, set them up so they're walking in holiness before him because he wants so desperately to bless. When Solomon first took hold of the nation and began to lead the, uh, the United Kingdom at that time, how blessed did Solomon get, basically, from the Lord? How big of a blessing did God pour out on him? It, it says the Queen of Sheba came, even. She said... I just could not believe the things that I was hearing, how the, how the God of your nation was blessing. I had to come see for myself, and not even the half of it was told to me. She got there and was so blown away by what she saw that God had done for these people who had literally come out of a place of bondage as slaves, gone on to a land as a, as a minority group, and took over the place at the, at the blessing of God, allowing them victories, and, and then the wealth that he accumulated. Now, we, we know the fallacies of Solomon as well, but 
knowing that the Lord's desire was to do that for Solomon and for his people if they would only follow him. So some of the things we've learned, I think, have, have a lot of practical application in our lives. If we take it down to a personal level and say, I realize, God, I am not under a conditional covenant with you. I am so thankful, Father, that this is a relationship of grace. But I also understand, because it is covenant, that I have a responsibility now that I'm in it. Now that you've blessed me with your Holy Spirit, now that you have given to me salvation, which I did not deserve or earn, now that I'm in that relationship with you, I need to walk in a way which is honoring to you. I need to bear your name in a righteous manner. This is what God wanted for Israel. He wanted them to bear his holy name before the peoples of the world, that the people of the worlds would look upon them and go, wow, that's a mighty God. I want that God, right? And Israel kept falling by the wayside and going back and chasing after other gods that were no gods at all. And it's, it is a sad saga to keep going back and seeing their failures over and over. But to know what God wanted, I think, is important. To know and understand uh, God's ways is one of the things he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand about leadership for God's nation, who we are, and today we could call our church our, the nation that God wants. He wants our churches to walk in these manners of holiness before him to represent him well. Uh, that he was, in the case of the Old Testament, though, don't ever forget that he's working through a national covenant, not an individual salvation. So you do not confuse or look at it as if, oh, they've lost their salvation. It's not even a subject matter of salvation. It's a, a subject matter of, of a covenant with a people who were supposed to walk in a manner which reflected God, and it was a conditional covenant. We see sin is forgiven when we repent, but there are consequences, good or bad. If, it's a, if you have good behavior, you get good consequences, but if you have bad behavior, consequences, even if God forgives, they're not all, the consequences are not always removed. That's important to understand, even in your own personal life. God, can, God will forgive you if you repent, but God is not necessarily always going to take away the consequences. And that's the hard thing. It's nice when he does, but he doesn't always. And God is long-suffering and faithful. The other, I would expand on that. I know that was the specific one with, that God is faithful and he's long-suffering. But we have seen the, the characters and the qualities of God in a much bigger realm than that too. How he's omniscient, how he's all-powerful, that he's sovereign over his people, that he loves them so much, that he's patient, that he's, I mean, the list goes on and on of the things that we have seen with the demonstration of who God is. This is one of the author's purposes in writing this book, is for us to come to know who is God, who is the God that dwells in your heart? How does he deal with you? And you can see it reflected through this, the stories that we're seeing here of the relationship with God and his people. One more thing is to know that and to come to know and desire no, no king but God. No king but God. Why not? First of all, he's a jealous God. He desires to be the, the, the one love of your life that you are to love no one be above him, right? 
There you go. Right. So which was, had to do with the uh, covenant quality, yeah, that God is faithful to his word. Exactly. Only he. He's the only one worthy and able. He's the only one you can trust. He's the only one you can really count on. All these other kings, all these other gods that you would put in your life are going to disappoint you at some point. You're going to come to find that there's futility in them. And this author, the, uh, as they write the first and second Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles record, they are demonstrating over and over and over the failures. Here's a king, and even the good kings, there were failures in them. Remember Asa, how he did really good until right at the end, and then he started waning a little bit. But he was he was a good king. But at the end, he, he turned away from the Lord, and, and he didn't even call on God when he needed him for healing in his feet. Remember? So he died at the end uh, in defiance to God. And what God is showing us in that is that um, any earthly king, no matter how good he is, even if, he, if he's a David who's after God's own heart, he's still just a man. And he has shortcomings and failures. Yeah, sovereignty. So understanding God and God's ways, who God is. And that would be his character and attributes. Right? Character and attributes of who God is. Pardon? Yeah. <laughs> everything all right nice okay well so that I hope that kind of helps you feel like you can see where you've really learned you have actually learned a lot more than you think you have sometimes you can get into these studies and they really are tedious and I know they are there's a lot of details we're going to try to whip through some of these things we've we've got uh, I think we still got adequate time to do at least a good bit of it uh, together this morning but Big picture, look how much we've really learned by doing what we've done. And I would also like to say one more thing about what we have done so far. Even though um, the, it has caused a lot of people to, I think, just kind of get frustrated and, walk, and just put it to the side. They're, they've stopped coming. <laughs> and they'll be back. But I am absolutely convinced that there is never an accident in, God, in the way that th God does things. And the canonized word of God on the whole, every single, every single period, every comma has its purpose in our life. I'm, to that d detail. What we have learned by looking at the kings and the prophets may not seem real applicable sometimes in the moment, but give it time. And I can tell you this, I already feel like I've got a better grasp on the history when I look at the Bible now on the whole, I can see, I, I've got kind of an anchoring. Yeah, Janice is going, yeah, I too. yeah, don't you think so? It's like, yeah, I think I can see now. For one thing, timelining on things. And Elijah and Elijah are no longer kind of dis, 
disjointed or disconnected from things. I can kind of put them in a place on the timeline now in my head. And I also can see their function and their purpose in the life of the, the nation as it was uh, unfolding, what God did through them and with them. And these are names that get thrown out there a lot for us and we're familiar with them, but now we kind of have a little anchoring. We, we understand them better, what they did, what kind of men they were like, you know, what effect they had, and really the high calling of the prophet. And we didn't really do a prophet study. I'd love to do one day just a topical study on the prophets, uh, the subject of the, the gifting of the prophet and who they are and what they do. Um, we have prophets today as well. They don't foretell, but they, but they do speak the word of God, and that's their calling. Elijah said, was commanded by God, he said, you tell them whether they want to hear it or not. And if you don't tell them, I will hold their blood on you. You will be accountable for the sin of not telling, right? But if you tell them and they, and they reject you or they, or they um, excuse what you've had to say and they don't respond, that's not your fault. I'll hold it then on their head because they've been told. But you have a responsibility to tell. That's the job of the prophet. So spiritual gifting, I didn't put spiritual gifts on the possibility of studies, but that was, that's another subject that's really interesting. Okay, let's start over here with 2 Kings 13. And we're going to go through and get our paragraphs and just try to talk through what we, the points that we've seen in there. Now, we see in 2 Kings 13 who? Who are our, our subjects in here? Our people, place, and people, places, events. Who are our people in here? Jehoaz and Jehoash. And they're so close together. Sure makes it tough, doesn't it? So our theme title or our book title or our chapter title in this would be Jehoaz. Jehoahaz and Jehoash. And what bit of information do you learn about both of those men? Does God give us a conclusion concerning each of them? They both did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you could, in your title, just say both of these did evil. And then what we're going to do is go through and say, well, how did they do evil um, in, in this particular record? In 1 to 9, what do we see? What did Jehoahaz do? Okay, so in, in what is the what are the sins of Jeroboam? This is a point that we have now very well learned in our time together. The two golden calves. There is a false idol worship that's going on in the north, in Israel, in the north. So these are kings of Israel of the ten tribes in the north. And this particular king, Jehoahaz, has followed in the sins of Jeroboam. And, and as a result, because he's their king and their leader, what effect has he had on the people? That's right. It's, he, it literally says in the scriptures, this is, he made Israel sin, right? So in 1 to 9, we see Jehoahaz. How did he do evil? He followed in the sins of Jeroboam.
Now tell me who Jeroboam is. There you go. Very nicely put. The first king of, of, the, of the northern tribes of Israel. Once the kingdom was split after Solomon's death, Jeroboam was the first king of the north. And Jeroboam, what was his reason in setting up this, this worship system that he had up there? He had two reasons. One, he was in Egypt and got familiar with the cat. The second, he was afraid his people would go revert back to Judah by going to Jerusalem. Yeah, because the place of the worship was where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And who picked Jerusalem as the place of worship for God's people? The Lord did. One of the things you can do when you go back into the book of Deuteronomy is see over and over and over, he kept telling them while they were still in the wilderness, and when you're on the land, you shall worship me in the place that I shall choose. And this is a repeated statement over and over and over in Deuteronomy. And so when they're now on the land, has God established a place? Yes, and we know that because in the beginning we, read, we studied Solomon. And what did Solomon do? He built a temple unto God, that the Lord allowed him to build the temple. So he built a temple, the place where they would come to worship God. And when they were a united nation, it was no problem. They were all coming to worship God in Jerusalem. But at this point now, under Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern ten tribes, they are now split. And Jeroboam is worried that if they go back to Jerusalem to worship at the place that God has chosen, that they will, their hearts will be torn to want to go back back to Judah to be faithful to him, the, the king of, uh, which, who was Rehoboam. Love these names that are so close together, don't you? Mm -hmm. So he was afraid that they would become faithful to Rehoboam and to Judah just by going down to worship. And so he established his own worship system basically out of jealousy or out of um, possessiveness, or power, a hunger for power. He wanted the people's loyalty to him. And so he established cab worship in the north. So that's Jehoaz. He had fallen in the sins of Jeroboam, and he made Israel sin. You guys, do you know how much you've learned just by learning that much? Wow, that's pretty good. I mean, really, that makes a huge difference. When you guys are in Sunday school classes or in church services, the pastor can read these things and talk about the sins of Jeroboam. You're going to know exactly what's being said, right? Okay, he did that. Now, just to go through a few points... Um, because Jero, uh, Jehoahaz followed in the sins of Jeroboam, how did God respond to that in verse 3? What do you see God doing in, re in response to that? He, that he was, first of all, he was angry. He, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, the northern tribes, and... Okay, so by way of review, when he gave them over to Aram because of this sin, how does that fit in with the covenant that God had made with Israel? So in the covenant itself, the covenant literally laid that out, that if you, if you disobey me or if you worship others or if you follow after other ways, when you disobey, I'm going to curse. And one of the cursings is... One of them, and there are many of them, this is in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, if you want to go back and look at it, he says, I will bring your enemies against you, and they will have victory, not you. You will become the tail and not the head. 
is what God said to them. So that's one of the ways that he followed in the sins of Jeroboam. And the, the response of God was to discipline. He didn't wipe them out. He didn't make them a greasy spot. He didn't annihilate them. But he disciplined them by allowing the enemies to come against them and uh, have victories in war, which they were not supposed to do. Now, why is, why is that, even though that, you know, we kind of pass through that kind of quickly, why is that so significantly a problem? Think about what the world is observing. Who they claim to be, right? Who do they claim to be? The people of God, their God who has established their nation, brought them in a miraculous way out of their bondage, put them on the land, gave them security, and now here we have enemies coming against them and they're having defeat? What does that do for the name of God in the world? It damages his name. Even though the world does not understand this is God's choice and he's sovereign over this, it's not like God's being a victim and that God is too weak. But does the world look at it that way? Do you have conversations with people in your life today where uh, when you see or they see your life having struggles or uh, difficulties that people say, well, where is your God? Why, Why is God letting this happen to you? Do you see how immediately the world who does not know God will blame your God for anything bad that happens in your life or in the world around you? Have you noticed that? Has it changed from these days? No. The world is watching, however. And so when God allows a ram to come in and have victories over his people, even the northern tribes who we know, especially at this point, they're in pretty deep sin. And yet still God, you got to remember, God, God is really being pa- Talk about patient and faithful to his covenant. He's really allowing them to get away with quite a lot, it seems like to me, in the way that he's doing it. Other people would drop in here and say, wow, that's pretty mean. If God's so powerful, why doesn't he just stop it? Why doesn't he just let them have victory, right? But it's because of the holiness of God. He says, if you obey, I will bless. When you disobey, I will curse. And here's a picture of that cursing. All right, so now he says in in verse 3, the Lord continually gave them into the hand of a ram. Then, which is interesting that follows that, is because he kept being attacked and having these things, all of a sudden a little ding, ding, ding must have come on, right? Because what happens in verse 4? He does. So what does it mean to entreat? to pray. He, he went to the Lord in prayer. He may have even sought out one of the priests, right, to go and speak to about this. And what happened then in response to that? What do we see about God there? God, I just think it's amazing to me. Do you remember in Ezekiel where, it, now we're talking about much later in history, right? Where we are in the timeline right now, they're still on the land. When we get all the way down into history and we're at Ezekiel, they're about to go into captivity, right? Or part of them has already even gone into captivity. But Ezekiel is saying to them um, at one point, the, the elders of the tribes come to him and, and want to petition him. He won't even listen to him. And God says, put your hand out. Or the other one was set a plate against them or something, if I remember right. And he says, basically, talk to the hand. I've talk, I have listened to you enough. And you weren't listening to me. I'm now no longer listening to you. There will come a point where God does put an end to it. When God will say, I've had enough. But at this point, what do we see God doing? 
coming back, coming back, coming back and saying, yes, okay, I hear you, I hear you. Let's go back to chapter 8. I do want to go back and look at that. 1 Kings chapter 8. And starting in uh, 22, but I'm going to, actually, I'm going to start in 27. I'm dropping down a bit. Solomon is at the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he sp spreads out his hand to pray. And this is the dedication of the, of the temple. Somebody read for me 27 to 34. Mm, yeah, 29 and 30. Okay, so in that first section there, 27 to 30, Solomon is requesting that God simply hear the prayers of his people Israel, correct? The, the most interesting part, though, comes in the next sec section because it really applies to what we're seeing here in this particular account in uh, 2 Kings 13. So read 31 to 34. Who wants that one? Who else would read? Okay, Don, thanks. Wow. Would you not say that's a direct application of what we're looking at? So he's literally saying, but when your people have an enemy come against them and they lose that war, and they're losing because why? They have sinned against God, and so God is allowing them to fall in defeat. And so when you have a defeat and then you recognize that that's what's going on, and you turn around and you pray to God about it, then God will do what? What does it say? He will listen and he will hear. He will not only hear your, the words, but he will respond. And so here we have in verse um, 4, Jehoahaz has entreated the Lord in prayer. And what does it say that God did? And he listened. I love that. That is, that is such a great. So nicely knit together, I think it's pulling together from where we started at the beginning to where we are now, is, is just seeing that the covenant that God made and the dedication at the temple that day, all that God, this all ties together underneath this, this covenant that Israel will be a nation and it will be a nation unto his glory. And that God will deal with them on this under this condition of obedience or disobedience and his response will reflect the two. But God over and over lets us know that he will hear when we repent. And so here we have a man, Jehoahaz, who's not been walking with him. 
It says that he, he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet at one point, somewhere along the way in his life, he comes to his senses when he's had another battle loss. And all of a sudden, he's like, you know, I wonder how I'm going to manage this situation. Gee, I wonder, maybe I should ask God. <laughs> Do we have that happen sometimes in our own lives where we tried everything else first? And then finally we go, hmm, I wonder if I should ask God about this. That's what seems to happen here with Jehoahaz. So he asked God, and so um, this record shows their sin is willfulness and not lack of knowledge, doesn't it? Because when he, he knows the right place to go, doesn't he? He's the king of the north. He's underneath, underneath the uh, worship system that, Jeho uh, um, that Jeroboam had established years before him. And yet when push came to shove and he finally got at his wit's end, he knew exactly who to go see. He went to the prophet of God for help. And this tells us that this man knew the right thing to do, but was willfully not doing it previously. And now he finally comes to his senses. And when he comes to his senses, whether he's sincere or not, we're going to see that that's probably not the case. Sincerity is really not it. But what... What does God do when a person does take an appropriate action toward, toward him? He responds favorably, doesn't he? Even if you do not necessarily mean it. He, do you think God knows whether Jeho, uh, Jeho has meant it or not as far as relationship with him? Oh, yeah, God knows. He knows the end from the beginning. And yet when Jeho has does the right thing, then God does what? Responds favorably. There you go. Isn't that awesome? What a neat insight on that. Okay, so we see another quality of God is his faithfulness to responding to prayer when, when anyone will call to him and ask of him. In verse 5, God then also did what in response? Not only did he hear, but then he did what? Sin and delivered. How many of you guys researched this to see about who this deliverer is? Nobody? Darn. I was hoping somebody did. I did a little tiny bit. Okay, then you can't. You saw what I saw. There are like three different views on who they think this deliverer might be. Um, but in the end, what we do know in the text, what the text shows us, is that who is the answer? There you go. Eventually we get to Jeroboam, who's the one who actually brings the, the borders of Israel back into place. They've lost so much of their border control. They've lost the Transjordan. They've lost several cities. And we're going to see in the next part of this storyline how that all transpires. But, but God does come in. God does respond favorably to his prayer when he asks of God. But there is a problem with Jehoahaz. And, and, and that was that apparently he, he was not really that full-heartedly full committed to God. And so the anger of God had kindled against him, and he was giving them into the hand of the enemies. But when they prayed, they did come back. Nevertheless, what? They did not turn from their sin. Isn't that amazing? Even though God said yes to them, even though God listened to them, and God did send them a deliverer, yet they did not turn from their sin. Amazing. God gives and gives, and they, they don't respond appropriately. Okay, so 
He left to Jehoahaz the army, not more than 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. So God literally wiped out their army, took away from them their defenses, their ability to defend themselves, left them in a very vulnerable position where they really had to rely on God, and yet they did not repent. All right, so now the next section is starting in verse 10. Yep. Well, I actually first broke it down 10 to 25. And I did it because it's one more man. First, we did Jehoahaz in 1 to 9. And then we just made a bunch of other little points. So you could break this down into lots of paragraphs, which I did. I have them broken down into subparagraphs to the paragraph title. Does that make sense? Because under Jehoahaz, there are all these different points. We see that he, um, the Lord continually gave them into the hand of Aram. We see Jehoahaz int, uh, entreated the Lord. In other words, he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. And then we saw that the Lord saw the oppression of Israel and gave them a deliverer. I think that verse is very interesting in verse 5, how it says that he saw the, their deliverer. Does that kind of remind you of something else? Another, another story in the Old Testament where God saw the oppression against Israel and he acted? Egypt. Egypt. It's exactly what I thought of. And so God saw the oppression. What does is, what is the fact that God saw the oppression tell you also about God? All-knowing? Merciful. Compassionate. He's watching. Think of that, that he's watching... Uh, he watches nations, but he watches also individuals. So he's a God of the big and the little again. We see him watching in a big picture and watching in a little on, on the individual. All right. Nevertheless, they did not turn from their sins. So then we get to 10, and I'm going to do it this way again, 10 to 25. And we're going to title it under Jehoash, the next king. Jehoash. And what did we learn about him? What was his major sin? Also Jeroboam. Again, we're at the same thing. He did not. Interesting to me how faithful they are to the calf worship, but they won't be faithful to God. Isn't that amazing to you? That kind of blows my mind a little bit. Uh, they did not turn. From sins. Wow, what is that noise up there? From Jeroboam. And he also, he made Israel also sin, right? Now, why do you think in both of these cases they added this part of it on here? In the context of what we're studying, how does that fit? Yeah, it's showing you the consequences or the effect of his leadership. So as a king, he did not follow God uh, as he was supposed to. He was not faithful to Jehovah. But they were faithful to the sins of Jeroboam, which means calf worship in those, the two cities in the, in the north that were set up for the worship at these altars with these golden calves. And so Jehoahaz followed those sins. Jehoash also did not turn from those sins of Jeroboam. And then the consequence in both kings' lives, Israel also sinned. So leadership matters. 
Who, how you lead matters. Now, we can take this from a nation, but we can drop it down into our own lives also. Who, who do you have an effect in your life over? What is your leadership like in the lives of the people that you touch? Obviously, I'm not a king or even a queen, although I have a little plaque in my bathroom that says it's good to be queen. <laughs> I really think it should say it's, good, it's even better to be a princess because queens have responsibilities. <laughs> but princesses just get pampered all day. I'd kind of like to be the princess. <laughs> but, you know, who else, who do you have a realm over in your life? And your children, your grandchildren, some of your neighbors or your friends, your circles of friendships. There's, you have an influence. You may not be the queen of the bee. We have a bee queen, though, don't we, at our quilt bee. <laughs> but you may not be the, the, uh, the, the queen of whatever you're thinking of in a literal sense, but there is an effect that you have on the lives of those that you touch. And this is, the, I think, the practical application of what you're looking at here. These are men and, and continually, as we've studied in the Kings and Prophets, every single one of them teach us whether or not they led Judah into sin or not. Now, there, there have been a couple of kings so far. Do you, can you remember who they were that actually led the people back to worship of God? Do you remember? Asa was one. Jehoshaphat. That was a really good one. Because his, they actually spell it out and talks about he, how he uh, sent teachers out into the land to teach the people. Oh, okay. Well, that's true. But I'm just saying in general, the kings. I'm not selective about which nation. I'm just saying... Do we know a king and their consequences of how they behave? You're right. In the north, have there been any good kings? I know, Margaret. I'm with you, girl. I know it. I know it. And it's so disappointing. And that's what I said the same thing. I sat at my desk last night and literally just went like this. I said, God, I cannot believe this. What is wrong with these leaders? They know the right thing to do, but they don't do it. And especially after God's been faithful to them and blessed them and, you know, rescued them. And <laughs> Well, that's true, too, but did they know about the Testament? Uh, no, that's not true. Who, when, when Jehoahaz was, was having enemies come against him and he was having defeats, what did he do next? He entreated of the Lord. So he went, and who, and who did he go to, to make that entreaty with? One of the prophets right? And he, and he got on his knees and prayed. So did he know the right thing? So did he have knowledge of God and God's word and God's ways and of the covenant that Israel was under as a nation? Do, do you have knowledge of it? I mean, this is really important to clarify in your mind. The answer is absolutely. They all knew it. In almost every one of these kings' lives, whenever there's a, a storyline that, that gives you indication of them having uh, to touch base in some way or another with the, with the prophets, which God gave them prophets in the north. Matter of fact, who were Elijah and Elijah prophets to? The north. So, and did they have knowledge of them? 
Yeah. And when those prophets like Zechariah recently went up against one of the kings, right, and gave him a word, what, what happened? They killed him. What happened to Elisha and Elijah both when they uh, went toe-to-toe and, and challenged people on the sin? They sought to kill them. I love the stories of Elijah. Do you remember the Elijah encounters? There were, there were regiments of, of uh, troops of men of 50 that came back to arrest him, lay hands on him, and take him before the king. And, and each time, what did God do? Zip, zippy. I, I, that's the one I want to see. You know, every now and then, I would just like to see God rain down fire. I, you know, I'm like a Jonah. Jonah, just, no, God, don't forgive him. Just wipe him out. <laughs> he sat on that mountain hoping that they were all going to die, you know. I, I got to confess there are times when I feel that way sometimes about s- sin. When I see sinners and evil, real evil going on, I'm thinking right now in my mind, God, why don't you just make a greasy spot out of all those jihadists that are killing people, right, that are that are putting people's lives in danger and who they're wreaking havoc in our whole world. Yeah, we, well, God, yeah, you, you and God are hoping for them to repent. Me and Jonah are going, God, get them. <laughs> I know, I know. Yes, God is absolutely. No, you're right, Martha. And you're being much more godly. <laughs> I am not being so godly. I know, exactly, Martha. Right. And I'm joking. I, you know I am. I'm joking. I want them to repent, too. Um, I, I posted a cross-stitch on my page this week. How many of you guys saw my little cross-stitch? That's, uh, uh, you know, all these new riots and things that are going on in, in our world right now. And it's, our world is an absolute insanity. And people are so angry. And they're, they're just deep-seated, venomous hatred for, uh, for those that do not think the way they do or, or want to accept them as they are. And um, so I have this cross-stitch I did in ni- 1986. It's been a while. And it was a precious moments. It's a little boy dressed in a doctor's outfit with his stethoscope. And he's sitting in front of a great big globe, one of those ones that twirls around on a base, you know. And he's got Band-Aids all over the, the, uh, the globe. And he's got his stethoscope, and he's listening to the heartbeat of the earth. And above it, it says, Jesus is the answer. And really, that says it all. That is the answer. And that is truly, you know, I'd, I would rather post something like that that, says it but it does it nicely rather than try to shake your finger at him because that's not going to help but you know if, if you study all the prophets and the prophecies and stuff like that you see that you know god is always working towards what he says he's going to bring in the end. yes and in this time the conflicts that we're having are really bringing a tremendous amount of muslims to christ even while muslims are you know they say it's and you know and Carrie, that's the part of the story we don't hear. Isn't it sad? Wouldn't it be lovely if every week from the pulpit we could hear at least one testimony about another uh, Islamic... Go to the Muslim-based that, believers conference. We need our missions people coming forward and giving us testimonies, though. I think that would... 
But Carrie, what I'm saying, I think that it would be really healthy for a church to have testimonies that are given to the congregation that says, although what's going on in our world right now is so hateful, but look what God is doing because of it. He's leading people. Yes. Yes, but that God is still working even in the midst of the horror. And is that not what we see here with Jehoahaz and uh, with uh, Joash? We see that God, even though these were men who were walking apart from God and, were, and really were committed to the sins of Jeroboam in the calf worship, and yet when they would turn to God, there was God waiting to respond. And he wants to, he wants to do good things for them. He wants to bless them if they will only repent and turn back to him. That's right. Because, yes, yeah, when, when your world is in chaos and everyone is hurting and there's fear, that's when often God is, is most reached for. When your life is in a catastrophe, when your, uh, your health is bad, when you've had a terrible accident, when your house is burned down, when your children are falling apart, your marriage is, cra is cracking up, that's when people run to God. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yes, Carrie. Yeah. Well, and I tell you what, we need to be reaching them and keeping them from going the other direction. Yeah, and, and now what they're doing is training them to go back. Yeah. Evangelize where they are. It's kind of like Lydia, the, the story of Lydia, where Paul witnessed to Lydia uh, of Thyatira, and then when she was, that was in the book of Acts, and she was visiting, I can't remember now where she was, Berea or somewhere in Greece, and then she went back to her home of Thyatira later. Yes. Amazing. It really is amazing how God works. He, he works in very mysterious and strange ways. And sometimes we see the horrible things that are going on. And we wonder, is there anything good? But I'll tell you what, the news is not going to tell it to you. And I've, I've about given up most of my news watching in the last 
few like last month or so it's too depressing and all they do is go with the negative and you know I know that God is sovereign and that is the one thing that we should have learned by the time we've gotten to this place in our study God is sovereign over his nations the world is his not it does not belong to Satan it belongs to God. He is the, the deed holder. And God is the one who is going to heal this. And we just have to keep on our knees in prayer. And I think we need to be focused on the truth. And the truth is God is the sovereign. He's the king of kings on the throne in heaven. All right, let's, let's go and just try to finish this up. we got like two minutes. So we're, we're not going to get through a whole lot. But what is the storyline about Elijah and these arrows? Did anybody understand that? What do you, tell me what happened there. That is the bottom line. This is the whole thing that transpires here between him and Elisha is symbolics. There's a picture that God is giving. And in, especially with the Hebrew mind, the, the Hebrew people always use imagery and pictures. A rock, a stone, a tree, a, a, a sheep, a shepherd, whatever. And because of that, so in here now, we're, it's an arrow. And he says, okay, shoot the arrow to the east. And he shot the arrow to the east. And then he gives him a promise, an absolute promise from God that what's going to happen? Israel is going to have victory over Aram, right? And, and not only that, are they all going to have victory, but they are going to totally defeat Aram, correct? All right. Then the next thing he says, okay, now do what? Take, Take your arrows and strike them, meaning shoot, shoot the arrows again. But what does uh, Jehoaz do, and what does it reveal to us about him? He only shoots three times. Interesting, right? Um, you know, in modern times, it would be take your gun and shoot. And, you know, if a guy only goes one, two, three, as opposed to a man who empties his, his gun barrel out, right? That's kind of the idea. What was, what was it revealing to us about Jehoahaz? There you go. Again, we're back to our subject of being a half-hearted effort. He gave half-hearted effort in response to the word of God through the mouth of God's prophet. God's prophet said, shoot those arrows. And he turned around, he goes, one, two, three, and then stood there and looked at him, you know. I, the guy, obviously, there was no real zeal. And here's the interesting thing about how you look at this, too, is he, God had just told him, I am going to give you victory, and you will utterly defeat this nation that's coming against you right now. What should he have been responding like? He should have been praising God and very excited. He should have been hyped. And any true warrior, and he was a warrior king, these warrior kings, they would have been go going, hot dog, let me get at him, right? In the end, if he had allowed God to do what God wanted to do through him, he would have been able to enjoy the victory of completely annihilating Aram. But what happened instead? He gave a half-hearted effort. He, he had no interest in God getting the glory for this victory. He had no interest in really having a zeal to go and do God's work on behalf of his own nation. And so he gave a half-hearted response. So what was the result of that? He only got to enjoy a, a, a small portion of the blessing. Yes. Okay, we are out of time, but let me finish this part here. 
All right, so Joash, he missed out on a great and full victory because of his half-hearted belief in the words of God from the prophet of God. That's in 18 and 19. And then 20 to 21, um, Elisha then dies is the next part of this. This is very interesting little extra add-in on here because it's not really an add-in. What's going on here? What is this story about? Right. So there's a, a raid, a band coming in and raiding the area. They're out. They're going to bury a dead body of a man, correct? Yeah, it comes, they drop the body or cast it into right. his grave and, and he comes alive by simply touching the dead bones. The dead bones, interesting bones is what it said, of Elisha, not the body of Elisha. So Elisha's bones are down to bones. So tell me, what is the message in that? The power of God, which exists in even the dead bones of a man who was righteous. Isn't that an amazing thought? Because here we have a nation who is not considering the power of God at all in, in most regards. And this king in particular, who had no interest in the glory for God and his power to be able to give them victory. And yet here, here he is, he says, this story no doubt brought glory to God because of the story that's told about what happened to that man. And it also did something else for the prophets that were still living. What do you think it did? Encourage them and concerning the people of the land, how do you think they now think about the prophets? An elevated respect, would you not say? Because they're thinking, golly, if Elisha, uh, his dead bones can do this, then we've got living prophets still in our land who speak for God. And the power that, that, sh that should be upon them is now that respect is given to them because of this event. So. Yes, yes, yes. So Elisha died. They record it's a supernatural resurrection event. The always, always, always in God's word, his purpose for supernatural events is to do what? To show who God is, his power, his majesty, his strength, his ability, his anything about who he is, he wants to reveal that. And in this case, that's pretty phenomenal. He is revealing to him, to the, the nation of Israel that he's a resurrection God. What is he fixing to do for Israel, the nation, that all its boundaries have been cut back? He's going to restore it. It's a resurrection God. So we have a resurrection moment here with Elisha, and this man's touching his body. And Elisha is the one who said to him, you're going to have full defeat. At this point, they're going to, at the end of this, how many, how much of uh, victory does Jehoahaz get? Only three cities, because why? He only shot three arrows. Okay, so shot three hours, you, arrows, you only get three cities. But he, what God is showing us with Elisha in the middle of these two storylines is, is, my word is true, I am a resurrection God. Elisha spoke my word, and as I promised you, I will resurrect Israel back to its original boundaries. And he's going to do it. Now, has he done it yet from what we've seen? No. But in whose lifetime will it happen? Jeroboam II, when we come into the next king, which we are not going to do because we're stopping. But if you wanted to go on now and read some of the rest of these stories, you could go on and get the rest of it. Well, we got through one chapter.
We didn't get through the, the Kings and Chronicles, right? And it was great, too, insight. Lovely review, though. You guys did a great job. Hello, we're so happy to have you back.